Hey, thanks for tuning in to the Fountain Church Podcast. Our prayer is that God speaks to you in a real and powerful way. So go ahead, grab your Bible, grab a notepad and your coffee, and let's dive in. Listen, for everybody tuning in online, we are so grateful. We have had, I feel like we're in Hawaii, uh, Pastor Mike Kai out there. I was praying for you this morning. I'm like, man, if this is how Hawaii is all the time. I can get used to this. I love the humidity. I love the rain, lightning, thunder. It was amazing. But uh, before we jump in, can we give a big shout out to our team? There is absolutely no quit in our team. And it has been an unbelievable time together. Listen, uh, I'm excited to jump in. We're uh, jumping into part two of a series entitled Recalculate. And if you're a first-time guest with us, uh, either in person or online, uh, my name is Matt. My wife, Jackie, and I were the lead pastors here, and we're just grateful to have you in the house. And uh, just once again, want to say welcome home and make yourself at home. And uh, I, I want to speak to you a little bit around this idea of decisions, 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 decisions. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for our time together. God, I pray that you'd speak to us this morning in a very real way. God, would you open up our hearts to hear you? God, I pray that, um, Lord, whether they're tuning in online or, or here in person, God, I thank you that your presence is not bound by space, by walls, or even time. Some may be tuning in a little bit later, God, and so I just pray that you'd meet us all right where we're at. And Lord, we just thank you for this in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. I mean, well, I want to take you to 2005. Everybody say 2005. 2005. It doesn't look like my keyboard is on point. 2005. Next slide. It's just not working on my TV, but can you guys see what's going on? It's on the side. Okay, there we go. There we go. 2005. Recalculating. 2005, there is a, there we go. 2005, there was a, a team of SEALs that were deployed to Afghanistan on a mission. And th their mission was called Operation Red Wings. They made a movie about it called Lone Survivor. I can't recommend the movie only because there's a lot of violence and cussing in it. Uh, but it's based on a true story. And they were sent uh, to Afghanistan to target one of the Taliban leaders. And on this mission, the mission ended up coming up compromised. And it came up compromised because they stumbled upon some shepherds and they were forced with the decision. Do we, do we kill the shepherds because we know they're going to go back and tell the Taliban we're here? Do we tie them up and just let, you know, animals come and get them? Or do we uh, let them go? And the story goes that they, they took a vote and it was a little bit of mixed reviews. But the bottom line was this. The commanding officer said, this is not up for a vote. This is, the decision is simple. Uh, we're going to stick to the rules of engagement. We're letting them go. And so they let them go, and they knew once that happened that it wouldn't be long until they would uh, really experience some, some heavy firepower. And that's what happened. A small militia came after them. Now, for Navy SEALs, you know, uh, their equivalent of fair, I mean, they'd be like, there were six of us. There was like 300 of them. We thought we had them, um, that type of deal. Navy SEALs are, are just, they're a different breed of, of people. Can you agree with me? Shout out to our Navy SEALs. If you're watching and you're a Navy SEAL, your next level. And so, so they, they, the mission ended up being compromised and they're under heavy gunfire. They're taking shots, shrapnel. Um, at one point they had to actually throw themselves off of a cliff uh, just to survive. 
Long story short, you can probably tell by the title of the movie, um, all of them died uh, except for one. He was wounded severely. He was able to kind of tuck under a rock. And as he tried to make his way to safety, he stumbled upon a, a body of water. And upon stumbling upon that body of water, there was a tribal leader from a village nearby that came out to meet him. His name, uh, the Navy SEAL's name was Marcus Luttrell. And the tribal leader uh, came out to, to meet him. And right away, you know, it was kind of like, are, are, we, are we good? Are we not good? And in that moment, that tribal leader had to make a decision. And like a, a modern day Good Samaritan story, he, he took him in, he bound up his, bandaged up his wounds, fed him. And the reason why he did that is there was a code in their village that you just don't help somebody or feed them uh, or take care of them, but you also, it's code that you keep them safe from their enemies. So when the Taliban came back to, to re-engage and, and, and wanted this Navy SEAL, they refused to, to let them do that. They risked their own lives, a lot of great sacrifice. Now, I, I tell you that story because I, I want you to, to notice two things. There were two leaders that were going about their day that were forced to recalculate. That there was a change of plans. Something intervened and they were forced to recalculate. They had to make some decisions. But I also want to point out that I think it's really beneficial um, that they both had a code. They both had a code that helped them filter uh, and help them through the, the, the recalculation and the decision-making process. And as a result of that, it led to many saved lives. And so the reason why I, I tell you that story today is because here's the reality. Now, if you're tuning in, I, I'm so grateful. If you're not a follower of Jesus or if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, man, we're so grateful that you're here. Welcome home. But I think it's important that you know that God also has a playbook, a code, if you would, called the Bible, called Scripture, where God says, man, this is my best plan for life. And God's word, it's, 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 it's really clear um, in what God is wanting for us. God is not for your demise. God is for your salvation. God is not for your destruction. God really is for your joy, wants you to know him, wants you to live the life that he's called you to because life with God is really life best lived. And, and, and it's cool because as you and I as followers of Jesus, we got to kind of take note of that because we're in a time and a season where we're constantly recalculating. We're constantly having to switch gears and change paths and redirect. Like this morning, we're forced with the decision. It was raining when we were setting up. It was raining. We have expensive equipment. What do we do? What do we do, right? Somebody had to make the call. Well, uh, part, part of our, 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 our values here is we will not settle for average when amazing is available. And we just believe that, Lord, we're going to push through this one. If it doesn't work, oh, well, I can die on that hill, right? Um, but if it does, praise God, what a win for the team. And, and so, yeah, we give up for the team one more time. And so with all that being said, that's really important for us to know as followers of Jesus, because the truth is you and I are also leading at some level and capacity, that all of us are leading at some level, uh, whether it's uh, amongst your, your family, your job, your group of friends. Uh, John Maxwell said it like this, because I, I think that leadership gets confused, that title gets confused. Many times we think a leadership means uh, a position or a title or a certain status, but John Maxwell makes it very clear and simple, and he just simply says leadership is influence. And all of us have been given a measure of influence in whatever sphere we're in. Like I said, your family, your job, your, your circle of friends. 
And within that, we are making decisions. Within that influence, within our area of influence, we are making decisions every single day. And you probably heard this growing up, maybe a parent, maybe a grandparent, maybe a leader in your life that says, I want you to know that your decisions don't just affect you. Anybody heard that? That they affect what? Other people. And, and, it, and it's, it's so true. We, we all know how it feels to make a bad decision, don't we? And then we also know how it feels to make a great decision. Sometimes you may be in a season where you're making a lot of bad ones. There's not so many great ones, but we can change that, Lord willing, after today. But, but then we also know how it feels uh, uh, when other people make bad decisions that affect us. And we also know how it feels when other people have made some great decisions that have greatly and deeply, profoundly impacted our life in a great way. And so, so the bottom line is we all have a level of influence and it's so important that we're, we, we understand that God has given us this playbook as followers of Jesus to really run this play because the truth of the matter is, is you and I are making 35,000 decisions every day on average. That's a lot of decisions. 35,000, the average adult makes decisions. 35,000 they make on an average day. That, that's a lot. And every decision, every one of those decisions has the potential to impact the life of somebody else. We, we will either lead them uh, toward life, light, and truth, which is the word of God, or we'll lead them nowhere, just kind of indifferent, or we have the potential to also lead people astray. And so I, I wanna dive into God's playbook. I wanna dive into the Old Testament today, and we're gonna look at a leader by the name of Nehemiah. He's one of my favorite leaders in the scripture. And I really believe that what, what we're, What's really needed right now is godly leadership everywhere, right? From our homes to our personal lives to our areas of influence, godly leadership is needed. And I can't think of a, a better leader than Nehemiah. Nehemiah is one of my favorite guys in the Bible. Uh, one of the things I love about Nehemiah is he's constantly building and battling. And he's having to build while he battles. So much opposition, so many obstacles, so many difficulties, but Nehemiah was always in a position, at least as we read through his story, it seemed like he was always in a position of recalculation. There was always change. There always something was throwing the plan for a loop, and he was, he was having to make decisions on the spot. He was having to make quick decisions. He was having to recalculate so fast, so consistent, and we see that it led to a great result. Now, now I, there's a lot of different things that we're going to extract from Nehemiah over the next several weeks uh, as we talk about recalculate. But, but I just want to focus on one particular area that may seem obvious. You may think you know where I'm going, but you probably don't. And there's, there's one key area that Nehemiah hones in on, and that's that Nehemiah lived a life of praying first. That great leaders pray first. Now, let me give you a little bit of context the people of Israel were taken captive by the Babylonians. Uh, they were taken captive for about 70 years. Uh, the Persians overthrew the Babylonians. The people of Israel were, were, were released to go back to Jerusalem to, to reestablish, to rebuild. Worship was reestablished, but the walls had been torn down of, of the city and the gates had been burned. They had a lot of opposition. Two of them we're gonna see today 
was Tobiah and Sambalot. Tobiah and Sambalot were, were almost like a governing official. We don't know if they were self-appointed or if they were appointed by the actual governing uh, powers of their day. But nevertheless, they loved that the gates were torn down. They loved that the walls were burned down and destroyed because they could exploit the Jews. They could go in and out as they please. They can rob, they can loot, they can steal. They had control. They can access the city whenever they liked. And they really liked it like this. And so this, this lasted, this, the walls were torn down and the gates were burned for a long time, about 150 years, 150 years. And many tried to rebuild the walls uh, about 75 years earlier. Some of the people tried to rebuild, but their enemies overthrew them. And people just thought this was an utter impossibility. And so when Nehemiah got word of how people were doing in Jerusalem, something began to happen in Nehemiah's heart. Nehemiah was serving as the cupbearer to the king. So he wasn't in Jerusalem. He was in the palace. He was living comfortable. And something began to stir. Something began to happen in Nehemiah's heart. It says this in Nehemiah chapter one. It says, when I heard these words that the walls have been torn down, that the gates have been burned, that my people are discouraged, they're living in shame, there's a sense of hopelessness. He said, I sat down and I mourned for days, fasted and praying before the God of heaven. Now, now I used to think that for Nehemiah, he kind of sensed some trouble and there was a problem and so he ran to prayer. And I think sometimes that's how we treat prayer. That's how we treat God sometimes, right? We're like, we, we have a problem. Then it's like, man, let's run to God. And, let's, and then once God fixes it, then we kind of, all right, we kind of settle back in the pocket. Then we get in trouble again and we run back to God. But I started to see as I studied the book of Nehemiah that Nehemiah wasn't just running because he was in trouble. This was just the way Nehemiah lived his life. Nehemiah, all throughout the book of Nehemiah, we just see him seeking God first. We see Nehemiah on a regular basis, whether he was, uh, had a project, whether he was making decisions, whether he was going to approach the king like we're going to see in a minute, uh, whether uh, he was faced with enemies, adversary, or trouble. Nehemiah's default was always to pray first. His first response was always to pray. Prayer was never a last resort. And so, it reminded me of the Apostle Paul in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 16 to 18. The Apostle Paul said it like this. He says, rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do you want to know what the will of God is for your life? Well, here it is. But I thought pray continually. Nehemiah seemed to capture this. But when I read this, it's like, man, how do you pray continually? Like, do you just close your eyes and just kind of like, all right, Lord, we're just going to walk around like this all day. But, but I, I think, I think what, what Paul is getting at is, is, is there's a, a posture of prayer. I like what the great evangelist Billy Graham said when he was showing up on one of the TV talk shows. They said, Mr. Billy Graham, they said, sir, would you, would you like a green room so you could pray? He kind of smirked. He said, no, thanks, ma'am. I've been praying all morning and I'm still praying as we speak. Just a life of prayer, a life that's constantly connected to God, a life that's constantly in tune with God, a, a life that's constantly dependent on God's wisdom, seeking God in every circumstance. It's just, I'm constantly connected. And, and I think we understand this. We understand this, especially a little bit of us older folks. We, we, we can appreciate it maybe a little bit more. Right? Anybody remember a, a, a landline phone? Right? For, for all you young people in the house, they actually had a cord. It had two cords, one that plugged into the wall and one that actually attached the phone to the little hang-up receiver. 
And, and what, what was so interesting, like, you know you were doing good when you were my age if you had an extra long cable that you could take that all the way into your room so you could get on like, what's up, boo, right? <laughs> like, you knew that you were doing something, but, but we, that phone did not represent always connected, right? Because people could call, and if you were on the phone, they're going to get a busy signal, right? And so sometimes you'd call like five times, like, I wish your parents would get off the phone, so we can talk about nothing for hours, right? And normally there was only one phone in the house or one line. And so people could like sneak in on your conversations, right? Like, like mom would answer the phone like halfway through like, okay, it's time's up. Hang up the phone, right? And, and, and there was a lot more accountability because when you, when you were dating and you called, you actually had to talk to the parents every time. Hi, this is Matt. Hi, this is Matt. She's calling for your daughter, she ain't home, right? Like you, you had to actually talk to the parents and it was like this, oh man, like are they gonna let me talk to them? And, and I think the worst part, ladies, maybe you can testify to this, uh, there was no caller ID. So like, like ladies, if you just had a breakup, if you just had a breakup, you're, you're, you're like, I hope this isn't him. And that's why I think the older phone was a lot more spiritual because it required a lot more faith. You're like, I'm gonna pick up the phone, hello? Oh, right it's him but 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 we understand now with the cell phone it's totally different like i'm connected to thousands of people with multiple applications all at one time all the time anybody can get a hold of me all the time it's a great convenience and it's a great torment it's both and and i i want us to to get this picture because we also understand what it's like to be constantly connected as a result of being dependent on something like our phone. You know, now when you leave, I used to leave my home phone, I would leave my house and the phone stayed there. And it was fine, that's just how we did life. But now it's, if I leave my phone, I'm like, oh Lord, where's my phone? We're like 20 miles away, we gotta go back. <laughs> right, because there is a dependence to always be connected now. And so we understand that principle. A lot of us work from our phones. Or we, we operate our lives a lot around the phone. And so we understand what it means to always be connected. And that's what Paul is talking about. That's how Nehemiah lived. There was this constant connection, this constant engagement with the Lord. Now, there's a lot of things that we could talk about prayer, but, but I just want to lean into two. And I think these two things are probably a little bit more obscure. You might not hear these things talked about as much when we talk about prayer, but I think from Nehemiah's life, we see this. And the first one is this, that when we live a prayer first life, a pray first life, God breaks you. And in that breaking, he begins to birth vision. As we live a prayer first life, as we live a pray first life, however you want to say that online, you can throw it in the chat, pray first. Like, however, if we're going to live in a state of constant connection with God, if we're going to pray first, at, 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 at just living in this constant place, as Paul says, continually, God is going to do some breaking and God is going to do some birthing. And so, so Nehemiah, I, I think this is, this is really important to understand. He was fasting and he was praying, as we saw in the, the previous verse. And he says, oh, Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of unfailing love with those who love him and obey his commands. Listen to my prayer Look down and see me praying night and day for your people Israel. Now, right away, he's starting with praise. He's just lifting up the name of the Lord. 
But all of a sudden he, he switches gears and he says, I confess that I have sinned, that we have sinned against you. Yes, even my own family and I have sinned. We have sinned terribly by not obeying the commands, decrees, and regulations that you gave us through your servant Moses. So now all of a sudden you start to see a breaking start to happen. Like he's lifting up the Lord, he's being reminded, but then also God's doing some heart surgery in him. Can I just tell you, when you're living a prayer or a pray first life, there's gonna be some blessing and there's gonna be some breaking. Are you with me on that? There's gonna be some birthing and there's gonna be some breaking. He goes on and he says, please remember what you told your servant Moses. If you are unfaithful to me, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands and live by them, then even if you are exiled to the ends of the earth, I will bring you back to the place I have chosen for my name to be honored. So now he's reminding God of his promises. He's praising. There's a breaking happen. He's reminding God of his promises. He's being reminded of the promises of God. And then it says, the people you rescued by your great power and strong hand and, uh, are your servants. And, oh Lord, please hear my prayer. Listen to the prayers of those who delight in honoring you. So now he's like, you are Lord of my life. Like, like we honor you. We are honoring your word. We are honoring you. You are Lord of our life. So he says, please grant me success today by making the king favorable to me. Put it into his heart to be kind to me. In those days, I was the king's cupbearer, meaning he would sip the wine before the king did to make sure that it wasn't poisonous. Last part, he says this. So I prayed to the God of heaven. Right before he's getting ready to approach the king, what does he do? Prays first. So I prayed to the God of heaven and I answered the king. He says, if it pleases the king, because the king was looking at him and was like, why are you so downcast? And he begins to explain that his people are in trouble. And he says, if, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in your sight, I ask that you send me to Judah, to the city where my fathers are buried. Here it is. So that I might rebuild the city so that I may rebuild it. So you see this beautiful process of, of God breaking him and then all of a sudden during this process of praise and, and breaking and remembering God's promises, declaring his lordship and, and honoring the Lord, God begins to birth a vision in Nehemiah for the impossible. God begins to birth a vision to rebuild. Now, now again, 150 years, nobody's ever done this. This is a huge feat. So to go to the king, I wonder what the king thought about as he looked at Nehemiah like you really think like you could rebuild this city but the king gave him his blessing and Nehemiah proceeded to do that and so I want, I want to take a moment and I want, I want to say this is, is vision is it's a big deal when God gives you a vision it's a big vision when God gives you vision it's always bigger than you it's always going to impact more people than you are you with me on that but sometimes I think when we hear vision, we, we don't really understand what, it, what vision really means. And, and vision simply means, uh, I, I like how Dr. Henry Cloud describes it. He says, vision is a desired future state. See, vision requires desire because without desire, there's no desire. Desire has a way to motivate you, doesn't it? Like if, I'm, if I have a desire to have something to drink because I'm thirsty, I'm going to get up and I'm going to get something to drink. Some of us, or we're going to ask somebody else to get us something to drink, right? Or we're going to tell somebody to give us something to drink. One of the two. So desire is important, but desire is also not enough. It's not enough. And like, like people, have you ever heard somebody say this? Well, man, if they really desired it, they would do it. And that's not always true. 
Like people can desire something so deeply that it paralyzes them because they don't even know what to do. They don't know how to proceed. It messes with them all the time, but, but it's like, I don't even know what to do. That's why vision just can't have a desire, but it has to have a future. Like, like you have to be able to see something differently, see something that doesn't exist as though it does, right? And, and it's, it can't just be like, like a future fantasy, like it, it's an actual state, a future state. Like, like I see the walls actually being rebuilt. Like, like imagine dignity coming back to my people, safety, refuse, that their shame would be lifted. But there's actually some tangible stuff to it. Right, so, so it's not just like a dream or a fantasy, no. A, a, a vision, there, there's an actual future state that says, man, this is now the trajectory which we are moving toward. This is now the mission. This is now what God has put out in front of us. And, and I'm telling you, and all of a sudden you start to get really specific. And that's exactly what Nehemiah did. Nehemiah went, he examined the walls, and he started to put some life or quote unquote walls, boundaries to the vision. Now, now, I remember hearing a story of a gentleman who was a, a night janitor at a convalescent home, and, uh, or I'm sorry, a rehabilitation hospital. And a gentleman was there visiting his, I, it was one of his friends, his name was Mr. Jones. Mr. Jones was in a coma, and the nightly janitor came in, and he came in with the bag, and he was doing his nightly cleaning and sweeping and taking care of stuff. And then all of a sudden, the guy noticed out of his bag, he pulled this vase with some flowers, beautiful flowers, bright flowers. And he put the vase up right next to Mr. Jones's bed. And then he went over to the wall and he took off the, the painting that was on the wall, pulled out a new one, fresh painting, put it on the wall, bright painting. And, and so the gentleman was kind of blown away. He's like, man, what are you doing? He said, oh, well, my job is extremely important. He says, you know, what we do around here is we help people get well. And science has shown that when Mr. Jones wakes up and he sees bright colors and vibrancy, that it's actually, it's going to stimulate his body to help him get better. And then as the doctors come in and say, you know, re respond to all the beeps and all the noises, they come in, they're going to have a clean environment. Everything is going to be where it's supposed to be. Everything's going to be orderly. Everything's going to be fitting so they don't need to be distracted so that they can help Mr. Jones get better. That's just what we do here. We help people get well. My job is very important. And so you could see how clear for this nightly janitor, he wasn't just sweeping and cleaning. There was a clear vision. What we do around here is we get people well, and this is how we do it. It's crystal clear. And, and so, so he understood that, that what I do affects everything around me. It affects the atmosphere. It, it, affects, the, it affects the environment. And so Nehemiah gets this huge vision to, to rebuild the walls. And let me tell you, this is so important because Proverbs chapter 29, verse 18 says, where there is no prophetic vision, this is the word, if you guys remember, it's the, it's the Hebrew word kazon, which means revelation from God. Where there is no revelation from God, where there is no vision, the people cast off restraint, but blessed is he who keeps the law. Now, cast off restraint, it literally means to live loose, to run wild. And I used to always think that this, this verse had to do with, if people don't have vision, they'll just go live totally sinful. But I, I never connected the why. 
And so as I did a little bit deeper study in the Hebrew, it, it actually means this. When people cast off restraint, it actually has this notion behind it that people will get so discouraged that they'll lose hope and start to live loosely, just start to live however, whatever comes to them. It's just whatever, because I, I have no hope. I have no vision. There is no clarity. So I just, I cast off all restraint. And that's where the people were that Nehemiah was pursuing. It says that they were discouraged. They were in shame. And so I, I want you to get this picture because vision is so important, I, especially when I talk to singles or when I talk to couples. They always ask me, Pastor Matt, how do we set up boundaries? And I always tell them boundaries are not the place to start. Boundaries without vision is torment. Boundaries with vision is difficult. But you always want to start with vision because the vision determines the boundaries. If there's no vision, you cast off restraint. You, you, you live however you want. There, there's, there's no boundaries. But if you have a clear vision, it puts parameters around where you're going. And so all of a sudden you're not keeping boundaries with one another because you just want to keep boundaries or it's the right thing to do. But no, there's a desired future state that we're shooting for. And so that's why we see a lot of couples, you know, they fall into sexual sin or they do whatever. And, it, and it's a big part of that isn't because they lack boundaries, because they lack vision. Letting vision determine the boundaries. And so now, now I know that there's a thousand different areas of our life that we could cast a vision toward. And I'm not saying go crazy and go cast vision for every area of your life. But I am telling you this, the big rocks for your life, you better have some vision. The big rocks of your life, you better have some vision. Where are you lacking vision? Where are you not living intentionally? Where are you lacking boundaries? It may not mean that you're simply lacking boundaries. It may mean that you're lacking vision. You're not moving toward a desired future state. Are you with me? And then the last thing is this, the last thing, because I know it's hot. The last thing is this. When we live a pray first life, it helps us to discern our direction. And now, discernment is an interesting word. It's kind of a Christianese word. And in its simplest definition, I love how John MacArthur puts it. He says, discernment is nothing more than the ability to decide between truth and error, right and wrong. Discernment is the process of making careful distinctions in our thinking about truth. In other words, the ability to think with discernment is synonymous with an ability to think biblically. Now, now am I the only one on the planet that feels this way, but... I feel like we live in a world with a lot of choices in America. There's just so many choices. Like back in the day, it just seemed like it'd be so much more simpler, right? But now you go to a, to a restaurant and you look at a menu and a lot of us look, we're like, what are you gonna get? I don't know, what are you gonna get? And there's so many different choices and because there's so many choices, it makes life a little bit more difficult because, because there's so many choices, we're afraid of regret. We don't wanna pick the wrong one. Are you guys tracking with me on that? Um, but at the same time, it can also keep us stuck because we don't want to pick the wrong one, so we just stare at the menu forever. And if you're going to lunch with that person, it, it's frustrating. Pick something. But no, if I pick that, then, you know, what if I don't like this? And what if, well, how about you get this, and then we can share? No, just, just pick something, right? But we don't want regret. We don't want to be stuck. And so when we find ourselves in moments like this with all these different choices, we come back down and we ask ourselves a question. Well, I don't want regrets and I don't want to be stuck. I want God's will. Like, like what is God's will 
for my life. Anybody ever ask that question? Like, God, I want to know your will in this situation. Back in the day, it just felt like it would be so much more simpler. Yet we love options. We hate options. But as a follower of Jesus, we come to moments where we're like, man, God, I, I'm not really sure. And I want to know your will. Like, what is your will here? Now, when it comes to scripture talking about God's will, most scholars believe in these two areas there's agreement upon. And, uh, and, and I, I drew up a little graph for you. Eric Geiger kind of gives this concept, but this is my own version of it. Most scholars believe that God's decreed will and God's desire will operate like everybody agrees on that. Nobody has any discrepancies there. Let me explain. God's decreed will is that I'm God, I'm super powerful, and I can do what I want to do, and I have the power to put the action behind it, right? Jesus said, I'm going to die, in three days I'm going to rise again. He rose. Jesus said, I'm coming back again. He's coming. And so God's decreed will, it's just very clear. God says, this is going to happen, and then we see that it does. But then there's God's desired will. And all scholars would say that there is God's desired will where God says, listen, this is how I desire you to live. This is how life is best lived. Like within these boundaries, this is, these are the parameters that I said, hey, you're going to experience the most life, the most freedom, the, your best life. God says, this is how I desire for you to live. And God's desire will, it has to do with his revealed will. Like things that God has already clearly spoken to us through scripture. Are you, are you tracking with me on this? Now bear with me. But then there's God's directive will. And this is where a lot of us land. A lot of us focus a lot on God's directive will. Like what investment do I make? What person do I marry? Should I be dating? Uh, you know, God, what is your will in this relationship? Should I make this purchase? And this is where scholars disagree. And there's two sides to the coin, and I think either extreme is probably not the right answer, but let me break this down for you. Are you with me? Can you bear the heat with me like a few more minutes? This will help you, I promise. Because it's, it's kind of like God's decreed will, God's desire will, and then we're confined to this directive will. Like, God, what is your will for my life? And so with the first kind of, with, with the first aspect, scholars would say, well, God has a specific plan for you in all of these areas, right? And so, so under this, we kind of feel the pressure of looking for a sign, looking for an open door, looking for a window. Like, God, uh, is this it? Like, I was thinking about red today, and they're wearing red. Maybe this is your will. Or if I would have done that, it would have changed the whole game for me. But because I missed it, now I got to live with God's second best. Like, this is going to be horrible. I can feel a lot of pressure. But God does use signs. God does, you know, give us confirmation and all that good stuff. But I think this side to the extreme can lead to a lot of pressure. It, it can lead to a self-focused, relying on yourself. And it can also lead to a little superstition that's really not biblical at all. But, but then, you know, there's this other aspect where it's not so much about discovering God's will, but rather, it's about doing God's revealed will, putting our focus there, and on the journey, you know, trusting that if we're living in God's revealed will, that we won't miss his directive will in those moments. And so let me show you what that looks like. It looks a little bit different. 
right? God's decree, Isaiah chapter 46, verse 10. My plan will take place, and I will do all of my will. Like God just says, aren't you grateful that we serve a God who's all-powerful and able to put action to his words? Awesome. And, and then God's desired will is what we read in 1 Thessalonians, right? Paul said, rejoice always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. And so, so what, what is Paul saying here? Paul's saying this is how God desires you to live, for you to live. This is, listen, not only does he desire it for you, this is how life is best lived. Like God's not desiring your misery. God is for your good. God is for you. God's, God, God's not for, uh, you know, to, to make your life miserable. He wants you to experience life to the fullest, as John chapter 10, verse 10 says, life in abundance. And, and so, and then it's like this. If we're walking in God's desire, we're like, like, if you're praying continually, if you're living a prayer first life, all of a sudden, our daily decisions feel a little bit more like a garden than a burden. And let me explain to you what I mean by that. Genesis chapter two, verse 16, it says, and the Lord God commanded the man you are free to eat from any tree of the garden. Except God's desired will, he told them, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's my desire for you. But all the other trees, you're free to eat. Like, like go for it. And so, so I want you to get this picture. Sometimes Jackie will tell my girls, I want you to go to your bed and I want you to lay down for 15 minutes and read. And so if one of my girls comes back 10, 10 minutes later and they say, hey mom, um, what nail polish color should I wear, light blue or light pink? My mom's like, well, that's, you're supposed to be reading. So you need to go back and finish reading, and then we can talk. But, but if the 15 minutes is up, man, spent the time reading, had a great time, came out and said, hey, mom, uh, which nail polish should I pick, the light blue or the light pink? There may be some occasions where mom's very specific and says, I think you should pick the blue one. And then there are going to be some where mom says, you decide. Like, like, not because mom is indifferent, but just because mom delights in the fact that you are walking in obedience. You are walking. Um, there, there's, there's great connection. There's great clarity. There's great harmony. And so I just take great pleasure in watching you decide and using your creativity with the way that I've created you. Now, does God never get specific this way? No, God can be specific. He has no problem letting you know what you need to know. But, but it does give us a little bit more freedom to say, man, if I'm really living out God's desired will, it's going to be really hard not to be able to discern his directive will. A lot of the times that I can't discern on a direction, many times when I look back, maybe not every time, but a lot of times it's because this is out of whack somewhere. Like I've got outside of his desired will and so there's a little bit of lack of connection or I know that this decision is probably not gonna be a right decision because it may take me out of the desired will of God. Does that make sense? I know I'm kind of going a little bit deep but I, I want you to track with me that, that it's not either or. Sometimes God's gonna be very specific but if we focus on doing what God has revealed, when that time for direction and clarity come, it's gonna be a lot easier. I'm not saying totally easy. It's just gonna be a whole lot easier to discern why? Because you are living a life of constant connection and fellowship with the Lord, sensitive to his voice and to the Holy Spirit, and it becomes a lot easier to discern. Your desires now are his desires, and there's a lot more freedom 
Are you with me in that? And so, so, so let, me, let me digress one more time because I think in this, I, I wanna show you how this works personally. So this last week, I was asking the Lord, I was like, man, you know, we're doing crazy stuff like this. We're doing church in the wild, right? It's raining and we're doing church. You know, all this stuff. And I asked the Lord, I was like, man, God, I know you've called us for such a time as this. I just wanna make sure that we're leading well. I wanna make sure we're caring for people well. I wanna make sure that the things that you have put in our hearts, man, that, that we're hearing from you. And it was so funny, because what am I doing? I'm praying, I'm just praying first, I'm bringing it to the Lord, and, and then what do I do? I go to my one-year Bible, right? That's the will of God, that we seek his face. So, so I'm just walking in God's desire when I open up our one-year Bible to the book of Nehemiah, and this is what it says. It says, on October 2nd, the wall was complete. Well, my birthday is October 2nd, and I felt the Lord speak so clearly to me in this moment that what I've birthed inside of you, I'm gonna see it to completion. Like, like keep going. And so that was a specific word, but how was that received? I'm just walking with God. Like the skies didn't part like lightning today and got a word from heaven. No, I'm just opening up the scriptures and God begins to speak. This is so huge and this is so important. That's why I'm gonna wrap up with this. So Nehemiah, in Nehemiah chapter six, it gets a little bit crazy. The wall's built, except the doors and the gates are still broken down and burned. And Nehemiah is facing great opposition. The enemy knows that they're losing. They got a little bit of a window to make sure the, wall, the, the doors don't get reestablished and the gates don't get built up. And so they start to threaten Nehemiah. They start to attack him. They want to harm him physically. And so Nehemiah catches word of this. And they said, hey, Nehemiah, won't you come down and meet with us in the plains of Ono? And Nehemiah said, oh, no. I'm doing a great work. There's a vision that God has given me. There's boundaries in my life that he's placed as a result of that vision. So I'm not coming down because he knew that their motives were wrong. And so it gets a little bit more sticky though. And so Nehemiah, it says that, he says, then he sent them this reply because they said, hey, why don't you come meet with us? Why don't you come, you know, stay with us? And, and he says, there's nothing to these rumors that you are spreading. Because what they said was, hey, Nehemiah, we heard that you're, you know, setting yourself up as king. We heard that you're trying to take over as ruler. Like, I don't think the king's gonna be very happy with that. Trying to entice fear, trying to intimidate him. And he says, no, nah, these rumors you're spreading, you're inventing them in your own mind. He said, for they were all trying to frighten us, saying, their hands will be weakened in the work. Their hands will be weakened. And it will never be finished. But Nehemiah prays. And he says, but now God, strengthen my hands. Thanks again for joining us here at Fountain Church. For more details on how to get connected, visit us at fountainchurch.cc. We're also on YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram. We'll see you next time.